The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections this November. Please text the word voter to 26797 to check your registration. You will also receive reminders for all local, state, and federal elections and your polling locations. And don't forget to follow I Am a Voter for more civic engagement opportunities. That's voter to 26797. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress and social justice advocate. I am Mandana Dayani, creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am a Voter. So Mandana and I are best friends, and we're constantly sending each other inspiring stories of people around the world who are doing incredible things. And then one day we realized something. Most of them had no intention of becoming heroes. They just knew they had to do something and did it. So after months and months of research into these accidental activists, we created our list of the 20 dissenters who blew us away. Based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan, a dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo, someone who fought to build a better way. This week, we speak with the incredible Skylar Baylor. Skylar is the first trans athlete to compete in any sport on an NCAA Division I men's team. He is an internationally celebrated inspirational speaker and a respected advocate for inclusion, body positivity, and mental health awareness. I cannot even begin to express how much his story blew us away and how important this conversation is. We have always felt that a lack of education and understanding is the most common source of division. And this is a conversation we just really hope that everyone hears and everyone shares. Skylar is so open and so articulate and so compassionate and took the time to really educate us. We really hope this provides a new source of understanding and the right language for all of us to celebrate greater inclusion. And now it is our greatest honor to introduce you to the amazing dissenter, Skylar Baylor, the trans trailblazer. Hi, Skylar. Hi. Hi, how's it going? It's great. Deborah and I have just been sitting here watching videos <laughs> and reading all this press on you, and we're really excited. Thank we, you. I'm excited to be here. So we kind of like to just dive in and, and really get to know you. We'd love to just start and tell us about your childhood. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in McLean, Virginia, which is right outside of DC, mm. right next to the CIA. I grew up with one brother. He's younger than me, two years younger, but I never call him my little brother because he is 6'4 and 245. Like <laughs> oh my gosh. And you cannot tell and the listeners cannot tell, but I'm neither of those things. <laughs> I was always a really active kid. I played a lot of sports. I did taekwondo, soccer, lacrosse, swimming, and I wasn't really good at anything specifically. I was kind of just a very diverse, diverse athletic kid, mm -hmm. but um, swimming became something I focused a lot on in late middle school uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because I ended up being good at it. Um, and I also ended up having a surgery on both my feet for a genetic issue that I was having. I had an extra bone in both feet. Oh, wow. And uh, because of that, I couldn't do any impact sports. And swimming was like the sport I could do because there's not a whole lot of impact. There's just the wall each, each, you know, 25 or age 50. My childhood was a lot consumed by swimming, I think, especially after middle school. But before then and throughout then, I was also a really nerdy kid. I say was as if I'm not still, but um, <laughs> I was the kind of person that carried around, like I had this like Nat Geo belt that I always had. Um, yes! That had like pockets for like a little pouch for specimen jars, a little pouch for... Um, um, a little notebook, pencils, magnifying glass. Oh my yeah, it was, God. It was, um, that's the kind of kid I was. That's genius. That's, I thought, that's I thought it was pretty cool. so cool. Did not, it did not earn me a lot of social creds. I will, I will tell you that. But it's so cool. I know. Now looking back, you were the cool You one. were the coolest one. <laughs> are, are, Something like that. Are all your family members athletic? Um, my brother 
was very athletic when we were growing up as well. He's probably actually a better athlete than I uh, am and was, but he doesn't love it as much as I did. So he didn't continue, uh-huh. um, but he swam throughout, um, throughout high school and a little bit in college as well. Both my parents are athletic people, but I, they weren't athletes, if that makes sense. Yes, of course. My mom was a later in life athlete and she ran a lot. She actually uh, did mar- like a marathon and then ultra marathons for a while, but she didn't do that when she was growing up. I see. And then where did your journey take you? I mean, swimming was the biggest thing in my life for the longest time in my life. And and as I got better and better in high school, um, I ended up being nationally ranked and going to nationals and, and getting recruited to swim in college. And I ended up committing to swim for Harvard University in September of 2013, okay. which was whoa, a whoa, dream whoa. of... Sorry, That's a big thing. <laughs> Let's have okay. there because that is that is huge. So Harvard, that must have been a crazy, exciting, right? I yeah, mean, I mean, so the the biggest thing that I that I talk about with regards to my high school journey was a lot of my life became about these kinds of what I call paper successes, kind of things you can write down on a piece of paper and say this is something I've done, right? Uh-huh. Good grades, getting into college, maybe getting a driver's license, maybe winning a gold medal. These are like paper successes. Yeah, um, I became sort of obsessed with those, and it became the only thing that my life was about. Mm. And Harvard was another one of those paper successes. Sure, I am proud of it. But at the time, it wasn't so much something that I was proud of as much as it was a relief. And I think that was really indicative of my mental health at the time. And I was really, really struggling in most of my high school years with mental health. I had been bullied a lot as a kid, um, partially for the specimen jars and being nerdy and being different, but a lot because I didn't look, quote unquote, like a girl. I presented mainly as male for most of my middle school. Um, so I still, I still told people I was a girl and that's why I was made fun of constantly. In high school, I conformed to this ideal of womanhood. I looked exactly like what everybody else wanted me to look like. I wore the right clothes for the most part. I mean, in high school, you can never wear the right clothes. Right. But I looked like this woman everybody wanted to meet me to be. And I, I got increasingly more miserable. The bullying went away, but my internal sense of self disappeared. Um, and when I got accepted to college, when I got accepted to Harvard, I was in that space of being absolutely miserable while wow. also doing everything that everybody else wanted me to do and oh getting that paper success, which was really, really confusing. And so my mental health actually got worse um, with those successes a lot because I think they were driving a different side of me. So when I graduated from high school, I actually went the next day to a mental health treatment center, took a gap year, and I spent a year doing mental health work. And that was when I figured out that I'm transgender. How did you, how did you make the decision to go and get help? Like where, what was that inspiration? Was there a a conversation in your home with your family about your struggles, about the fact that these paper accomplishments were, were making you feel worse? I don't think it was that explicit about the paper successes, Mm -hmm. but I was explicit about my mental health. I was struggling with an eating disorder, with depression, with self-harm, and with other maladaptive coping mechanisms. And I was explicit and articulate about that struggle. And I declared that about halfway through my high school career. Um, I actually ended up breaking my back in a biking accident. And that was when everything fell apart for me. Wow. I really started struggling with mental health because the number one coping mechanism that I had previously had, swimming, yes. was, was ripped away from me for several months. Um, and it was in that space that I started really struggling with depression, really struggling with an eating disorder. Um, and I, I actually almost immediately, as I began struggling with these things, asked for help. And I was like, mom and dad, I, I need a therapist. Wow. Um, and I got one, um, but it, uh, my problems were, were, were I, I want to say too severe, but they were, they were so deeply rooted that a therapist seen for one hour a week wasn't nowhere near enough. And so by the time I'd gotten to my senior year in high school, I was so miserable that I'd gone to the hospital a couple of times for the mental health issues I was having. My parents were like, we need a new therapist. New therapist said, this isn't this isn't working. You need residential treatment. There's way too much going on here. And there's no way you're going to be able to figure out how to heal from this while you are also trying to succeed in, in, uh, in swimming, in academics, and then have any kind of social life. Let's go to a quick break to talk about our new brand partner, Sakara, a nutrition company that focuses on overall wellness, starting with what you eat. We all want to feel better about what we eat, but sometimes it's hard to prepare healthy meals that also taste good. Sakara doesn't sacrifice taste, so it is so much easier to stay on track and eat healthy. 
Also, you'll never get bored of their chef-crafted meals because they change weekly and are delivered fresh anywhere in the U.S. Their organic, ready-to-eat meals are made with powerful plant-based ingredients, and they're designed to boost your energy, improve your digestion, and get your skin glowing. Along with delicious meals, Sakara also has daily wellness essentials like supplements and herbal teas to support your nutrition. To boost results, try the best-selling Metabolism Super Powder, an all-natural remedy for fatigue. I had read some great reviews from Vogue and Goop and loved what I saw. So here's the exciting part. Right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash dissenters or enter code dissenters at checkout. That's sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash dissenters to get 20% off your first order. Zakara.com slash dissenters. Now back to the episode. And your drive to succeed as a swimmer, was that your, from yourself? Was that from your family and or culturally? I don't think there was any familiar or cultural pressure for me to succeed in swimming. I have always loved swimming and even through the mental wow. health struggles that I had that ended up causing me, me to use swimming as some kind of proxy. Right. Uh, I, I still think that swimming was, was all about my love for the sport and my own Got personal it. drive. So I think that was very internal. Yeah. Were you scared or were you relieved when you went into the residential treatment? Both. Okay. Definitely both. I think there was fear surrounding what does this mean? How am I going to tell people what I'm doing? Um, I had to tell my coach that I was going to take a year off and not come to swim in that fall. That was very fearful, but I was relieved because it was this contained place that I could, I, I knew the number one purpose was for me to work on my mental health. So I had a very clear purpose. Wow. And at what point in that time in the residency did you start to uncover the connection to gender identity? About a month in, maybe three weeks in, I started talking about it. I mean, that's a relatively long time for a therapy type of thing. You're doing therapy 12 hours a day, every day of oh the week. Gosh. So it's a pretty intensive time and time passes sort of slowly in that in that way. But I, I ended up having conversations with my therapist and she was a very, very good therapist. I mean, she saved my life for sure. Wow. And she had me dig into parts that I had never dug into about my history and when I felt comfortable and, and, and what presentations I felt comfortable with myself, why I was obsessed with my childhood boyhood, if you will. Um, and that was where we ended up figuring out more about my gender and, and, and making this space for me even to explore the, the concept of my gender. So that wasn't something that you had thought about before? No. It, I mean, I, when I was a kid, like when I was in middle school and I was presenting as male, I mean, I had short hair, all my clothes were boys' clothes. I only played with boys and everybody called me male pronouns unless told otherwise. Oh, wow. They were told otherwise every time though. I will, I will also add that. Like nobody would allow me to be called male pronouns because they thought it was like offensive to me. They did it in protection, but it would be like teachers would call me the wrong pronouns and the whole class would chorus like, like Skylar's a girl or whatever. Um, so it, it was uncommon that people continuously called me those, those pronouns. But in that time, I knew very clearly in my head, I wanted to be a boy. That was, that was the language. I didn't know I was allowed anything else. I thought that there was something wrong with me. I thought that it was shameful that I wanted to be a boy or that I felt like a boy. Um, I know now that I am a boy and that I was yeah. a boy then too. I just didn't have that, again, um, allowance of vocabulary or resources to declare that. And how did your parents respond when, when you were in middle school and you were presenting as a boy? Did you, did you ever feel from them any kind of questioning or pressure to conform to what is normatively a feminine yeah. presentation? Um, my parents were very uh, flexible and open with my gender presentation in that they bought me what clothes I wanted to wear. Um, they never told me that I had to have long hair. They only ever put me in a kind of gendered box when we had to go to a, like a social gathering of some kind uh -huh. in which I had to dress up and that was like respectful. So I when see. we went to like my piano recital, I had to wear a dress. So through therapy, you, you started to uncover some of this. And when yep. did you, what happened next? Like what did you, did you yeah. decide how you wanted to approach this and telling your family and 
Yeah. So after I, I processed it a bunch in therapy, um, I got to a place where I started talking to my parents about it. Uh, they were very much accepting of where I was at. And what I mean by that is they met me with a ton of love, a ton mm. of, you know, you're, we're here, we'll, we'll figure it out. And not a whole lot of understanding. Nobody knew what was going on, which was me included. And we kind of, it was kind of figure out as we go. After I left treatment, I spent 131 days in that residential treatment center. Um, and I left in October of 2000. 2014. So again, about five months after I'd graduated from high school. At that point, I was certain that I was trans. Um, I was certain that I wanted to go through certain processes within the, um, you know, within parts of, of a transition, of a medical transition. Um, but everybody was telling me to slow down. And I was like, I can't slow down. I have to go start school next year. I can't slow down. I could have slowed down a little bit for sure. Um, <laughs> I'm definitely a fast paced person, which you probably can tell by the way I speak. You must have also been excited. It's like, oh, this is it. I know who I am. And now I'm just yeah. want to just be there now. <laughs> the reason I say, yeah, the way I just did is um, I was excited. I was also really, really terrified. Yeah. Um, I, I mainly because as we've discussed, I'm an athlete. I'm a swimmer. I was recruited to swim for the Harvard women's swim team. And oh. I thought being trans was going to destroy everything that I loved. Um, actually, I was pretty sure, sure of that. But I took a leap of faith. And I told my coach, the woman's coach who had recruited me that I was trans. I said, I have no idea what this means. All I know is that I want to keep swimming. And she said, listen, Skylar, I don't know what it means to be trans. I've never met a trans person. I don't even think we have openly gay people on our team, but I do know that this team loves you and that I love you. And we recruited you for a reason. So if you want to swim, you have a spot on this team. Let's figure this out. Wow. wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it was incredible. She led and she said this specifically to me. She was like, I'm leading with my motherhood here. All I have is that I, I want you to be happy. So let's figure this out. Oh my God. Oh my God. That makes me want to cry. Actually, has <laughs> tears in her eyes. So oh. Steph, Stephanie Moraski is the coach. And um, well, that was also part of, of saving my life. And I've told her that so many times. It will never be less true, but she she made that space for me to explore wow. right? and, to, and to be okay. Um, that was one of the reasons I chose to swim for her too, because I was like, I, I, I felt that yeah. otherness from her, I guess. As we move forwards and I realized I wanted to transition, I wanted to get top surgery. I was going by he, him, his pronouns in many spaces. I was going back to wearing men's or boys clothes again. My coach was like, wait a second, hold on. So you're taking all these steps forward, right? To be yourself in the world, but then you're going to be on the girls team. How's that going to work? Mm. I was, I would say, stupidly optimistic. I was like, it's going to be fine. I'm going to be a woman over here. I'm going to want to be a man over here. Like, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. She talked to the men's coach. The men's coach said, wait a second. So you have somebody who identifies as male, wants to swim on the Harvard team, and is already accepted to Harvard. And I have a men's swim team at Harvard. Why, does it, why doesn't he swim for me? Which... Sounds simple when I, I know it sounds so obvious, it sound, but it, it sounds too simple. Right. It's, it sounds um, it like, you know, in my in my mind, I, I just imagine this conversation with the with the the male athletic director saying, Well, you know, but I didn't recruit him. And it seemed like God bless the people at Harvard is yeah, what I, I was I'm yeah. saying. Me God too. bless them all. No, they're fantastic. I have nothing bad to say. <laughs> so yeah, they wonderfully offered me the opportunity to swim on either team. They didn't force me to choose. Um, they offered me the choice. I actually sat in that office. I burst into tears of, of terror, not of relief. Mm. Um, felt like my entire life was being ripped into two. Um, and, I, and, I, and I actually said no um, in that office. I said, no, I can't swim for the men's team. I have to swim for the women's team. The reason being, I had spent my whole life working to be good at swimming. I started swimming when I was less than one years old. I had started on a team when I was four. I had started competing for, um, for all year round. By the time I was eight, I was training at 4am before school. So I could train twice a day by the time I was 12. Wow. I was training for 20 hours a week by the time I was 13. And I was nationally ranked by the time I was 15. That all was because I wanted to be good, right? I wasn't doing that because well, I was going to throw it away. Yeah. And swimming on the men's team felt like throwing that all away. Um, and, it, and it would be to some degree, right? In, in that paradigm, it would mean absolutely throwing away any opportunity of ever being good as a woman swimmer ever again. 
Um, and absolutely throwing away the opportunity to be on the women's team record board, to go to nationals, to maybe go to Olympic trials, who knows, beyond. So I said, no, I, I felt like I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready to give it all up. But over the next month or, or three, um, the coaches did encourage me to meet the men's team, hang out with them, see if I could feel comfortable with the team. I did, and I, and I did. I felt comfortable with them. I had a really great Were time. Were you nervous? I'm like so nervous before those social situations. I was so nervous. Oh my gosh. God. The first meeting I sat down with the, with the two captains of the men's team. And you know, you got to remember that they're you know, seniors on the men's team. Yes. I'm not even a freshman. Um, I've so been, they're gods I'm not anyway. Hormones, so I look, I, I look and felt like a fetus. Um, <laughs> felt like a total baby. You know, these guys have beards and like are, are six yeah. foot four and super just muscular athletes. And yes. I, I'm just a baby. I would have been terrified. That was a lot of the reason that I was resisting joining that team. So I, I was absolutely terrified. But wow. Yeah, they they were so excited, so ready to welcome me on the team. They had ideas of how I could be on the team just socially and not compete for them, um, come to their you know, social events and stuff. Um, they told me that we could just tell everybody that my mastectomy scar was a shark bite. Oh um, my gosh. Which I thought was hilarious. And after that, end up hanging out with the whole men's team, you know, seeing if I could feel comfortable with them. Somehow I did. I, I don't really know how. I mean, even thinking back on it, I'm nervous for myself all over again. Um, but <laughs> and decided to swim for the men, men's team. It was a very painstaking decision. Um, it did feel like I was throwing a lot away, but it also felt like I made the decision because I thought, okay, maybe there's this chance that I could have more. Maybe there is this happiness that I haven't even, you know, scratch the surface of. Um, turns out I, there was, yeah. So wow. that's fine. That's insane. Oh my God, so what incredible. was that first time like when you swam? I started swimming on the men's team that following fall when school started in the end of August. I mean, the first time I'm wearing a men's suit, I'll try to be quick in my summary of it. But I, the biggest thing that I felt was just like a new sensation. I had never felt the water rushing across my chest like that um, wow. in, a, in a competitive sense. And that was, that was new. It was like a really different experience. Also, the suit catches water differently. Um, oh, just the way wow. like the water rushes through the suit. Yeah, yeah. That just feels different in how I swim. Um, so that was something to get used to. Once I switched to the Speedo though, that, that kind of little bikini, then there's yeah, not any yeah. different hydrodynamics. Um, it took me a long time to switch to the Speedo though. But yeah, the first day on the team was the word that encompassed all of this. I was absolutely terrified for most of 2014 and 2015. But as, as we now know more for other parents, I, I encourage them to have conversations with, with their kids. If it's a consistent thing that their kid is constantly being misgendered and the kid is presenting in a way that's gender nonconformative, have a conversation. Say, hey, would you prefer different pronouns? Do you want me to correct people when they call you these pronouns? And my parents just didn't have the resources to have that conversation just like I didn't. So can we just stop for two seconds? I think we talk a lot about, you know, what will ultimately help kind of unite our country and, and move us all forward here and around the world is just like greater understanding. Can you just take a second to explain what those terms mean? Like what is non-binary and transgender sure. and why, I mean, why are pronouns important? And, you know, this whole identity language, I think people- sure. It's very new. And they don't understand it. And I think they feel like they're going to get in trouble, but they don't know how to ask. And so sometimes I just feel like if someone could explain it to them, maybe they'll do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, so the first thing that I always do, and I, I've given over 165 presentations specifically about my experience, including about these kinds of words and, and sort of education surrounding trans and, and um, gender, you know, expansive folks. And I always say before I start into the educational portion that if you don't understand these things, that's not a bad thing. Like we don't get taught anything about gender in schools. And if you, especially if you're over the age of 20, pretty much, you don't know anything because you literally never have heard these words before right. because I didn't hear any of them. So why would, I mean, I knew nothing about this until I came out as trans and I only know about it because I am trans. So I think that there, I think that one of the things I try to give people permission for is to not understand. That doesn't mean that their ignorance is okay so much. It doesn't mean that it's okay to make stakes. It means that ignorance is okay as long as you're working to educate yourself. Right. So so yeah. I think that's a that's an important distinction. If you're going to say, "Well, I just didn't know," and then and then 
But not. try to know, like try to learn, right? Yes. So it's, it's fine that you don't know, but learn. I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I think people step really lightly around trans people because they're afraid that, they were, that we're going to get really angry if they mess something up. Yes. And I think it's all about intention. If your intention is to learn, I'm happy to teach you. I'm happy for you to mess up. And then as long as when I respond and I say, hey, you know, maybe maybe it's better to say this this way or, or maybe this is what you meant and you're receptive to that, great. I'm going to have that conversation with you all day. So backing up from that, or I guess moving forward from that, a couple terms that are relevant. The first one is, is transgender. So the word transgender is an adjective, which is a really important starting point. A lot of people say the transgenders or a transgender, and that's just grammatically incorrect. Mm. So transgender is an adjective that is used to describe a person who doesn't identify as a gender they were assigned at birth. There is no changing involved in identifying as transgender. It's just that identity. So even before I transitioned, even before I looked like I do now, I still was transgender and I still am transgender in how I see myself, right? It is mm -hmm. about how my identity is different from what I was assigned. If you do identify as whatever you were assigned at birth, that makes you cisgender. Trans and cis come from the, the um, Latin roots. Trans means to cross a boundary and cis means to remain on the same side. Uh, sometimes that helps people remember those words and the etymology kind of can help um, illuminate the definitions. The term gender nonconforming or gender expansive or gender non-binary mean that people don't fit into the binary of what uh, folks expect or, or sort of what society has laid down as what gender means. The quote, gender binary is um, the idea that there are two genders, male and female, and mm -hmm. that that's all that there is. Right. And a lot of a lot of actually biological research and then gender psychological research is showing that that's really not as simple as gender or biological sex is. There is there's plenty more complexity and diversity within human experience, just like there's plenty more diversity in the human experience in everything else about humans, right? right there's right. pretty much nothing else about us that is that binary, right. except for what people expect about gender. And it's actually turning out that that's not the case with gender either. I saw your explainers on Instagram and I think it's so incredible that you do those because I really do think it's it's so important to try to educate people on, on all of this. Yeah, I think there's just a lot of misinformation and part of that is a result of a lack of research, honestly. Like we just didn't know these kinds of things 20, 40, 100 years ago. Yeah. You posted something that said identity, you know, is important. Can you elaborate on on why language is important? Why mm. why is language important? So I think language is incredibly important, especially when talking about marginalized folks, because there is so much history to the language. There is so much uh, baggage that can come with language. And there are nuances within language that can imply things that you didn't mean to imply that can further marginalization and further oppression, even if you don't know you're doing that. Mm -hmm. So for example, there's a word that people like to throw around that's transgenderism. And that is supposed to describe the experience of being transgender. I've often encouraged folks not to use that word, um, mainly because ism is a, is a suffix that's added to a word when it, when it is a state of being or a belief system, right? Like feminism, right? Um, Buddhism and being transgender is not a state of being subject to change. And it's also not a belief system. It's just mm. an identity. So I say my transness or my experience as a trans person. Mm. And that's like a very slight thing. And I know when people are saying transgenderism, they're not trying to make me feel like this, this other, you know, or this, this belief system. But the problem is there is that attached to it. Right. Um, and there's a lot of things like that. And, and um, I'll actually hit on a, a little fragment that I heard from you as well. Um, earlier, you asked me, when did you know you were in, quote, the wrong body? And uh -huh. I personally don't love that phrase because, you know, my body didn't feel congruent to me. So that's a, that's a word shift, okay. but I didn't, I don't think my body was wrong. Um, and there are trans people that would describe their bodies as wrong. I have tried my best to share my perspective of the language shift because uh -huh. I think there's a bit of self-acceptance in that shift of language that can encourage other folks, including other trans folks to see themselves as acceptable, not, uh -huh. which doesn't mean that they can't want to change their bodies, get surgery or take hormones. It absolutely can encompass those things, but there's a bit of self-love underneath the statement, my body doesn't feel congruent to my yes. identity, then yes. my body feels wrong. Yes. Does that make sense? hundred percent. That makes so much sense. Yes. So that's why I'm really, really intentional about language. That's so incredible. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm learning so much. This I know. I know. 
I'm sorry. I'm I'm just uh, that's all dropping in right now. So I'm just trying to <laughs> In this last season of Will and Grace, there was an episode where we had a 6-year-old trans girl on mm. as an Oh yeah, yeah, as an actress. And I remember I remember her sitting there and, and us doing the table read and she wasn't wearing a dress. She was wearing a like very sort of silky jumpsuit. Mm. And so I thought, okay, is she fluid? Mm. Is she trans? Mm. And I just, I was like, who do I ask? Mm-hmm. And I, I ended up going up to her mother and, mm-hmm. and saying, you know, what pronoun should I use? And mm-hmm. she said, thanks for asking it. Use she and her. Mm-hmm. But I, I imagine that that is sort of happens to everybody who first encounters a child, you know, who is presenting differently than than their biological sex. In a gender non-conforming way. Yes. Yes. And um I did I I mean, I look, I'm on I'm on the show Will and Grace. I mean, it's all about, you know, yeah. LGBTQ. I mean, you know, and I, sure. I and I felt like this sort of moment of like tightening up and Cuz you didn't fear. know because yeah. I didn't know and I felt an, an, like an even bigger obligation to be correct. Sure. Yes. Because of expectations, because of my association with the show. Absolutely. So is that the proper way to approach a situation? Do you ask someone for their pronouns? Because I, I think I, I want to get rid of this mystery and people's fears. Because I just mm-hmm. think the more people understand wh- how to participate in this conversation, yes. the more just open acceptance that we'll I mean, see. I didn't, I didn't know if I should go up to her and mm-hmm. that, you know, mm-hmm. and but she's six, you know, and it's like, clearly she, she is identifying, you know, but again, it's just like, what, what is the right, the right thing to do? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. And I, I think that you, I, I think you approached it perfectly. I think, um, Asking a parent is is a in that situation where the kid is six is is totally appropriate. I do think reading like reading the room, reading the situation is also appropriate. Like if it had yeah. been just you and her mom hadn't been present, I think I would have probably asked her. Maybe not in. A, my biggest thing with asking pronouns is not to do it surrounded by people. So if I'm unsure okay. of somebody's pronouns, I'm never going to say in the middle of a group, hey, what pronouns do you prefer? Because that's right. uncomfortable. And that puts the person on the spot. They might not want to be on the spot. You know, lots of different things that can happen. What I will do is maybe if we're walking in a group, I'll kind of fall back with them, have a chat and literally say on the side, hey, what pronouns? Just want to you know, yeah. make sure. What pronouns do you prefer? I prefer he, he him, his. And I'll say mine too. Because there's part of that is also just being like, hey, let's just normalize saying pronouns. And I'm not calling you out just because, you know, you're, you're, you look gender nonconforming. Because mm-hmm. part of it is also like, do we only ask the people who look, quote unquote, gender nonconforming? Or do we just ask people because maybe we shouldn't assume yes. right, what their gender is? And a lot of, I think, some of the super progressive spaces right now are moving towards saying your name and your pronouns. Um, the same way that I wouldn't call every like male appearing person John. Right. I'd say, hey, what's your name? You right. ask like, hey, what are your pronouns? Right. Um, or just introduce, hi, I'm Skylar, he, him, his, you know. Um, and I, I think that there's there's a lot of value in normalizing those those um, that way of entering a space. Um, I, I will also say that it's I think this fear that you're you know explaining of like, oh, my God, I might do something wrong. I think that's a really, really key moment. Um, and a lot of people will shy away from an, ex, an experience because they have that fear. Um, and they're what they're afraid of is not trans person actually or the transist they're afraid of being wrong yes they're afraid of being wrong and they're afraid of hurting hurting somebody. people yes yep. absolutely and i think that's that's that intention is key though because i think what what the actual goal then in your heart is what's going on is is you're trying to be respectful and people get caught up in this pc you know politically correct uh, what's the right way? Like social pressure, I guess. Mm-hmm. Everybody has to be PC. Don't say anything wrong. And a lot of people, you know, on the sort of more conservative side, rebel against PC culture. Why do I have to censor what I have to say, right? And I, I'm like, I actually think we should just throw out the whole idea of PC culture and and accept respectful culture, right? I'm going to be here for whatever you want to say if I feel respect behind your intention. And if you're here to respect me, you're here to be kind. If you say the wrong thing, we're going to have a conversation about it. Does that mean my feelings can't be hurt? No, my feelings can be hurt if you say something wrong, but I'm going to enter that space with the same kind of respect. And hopefully if you're willing to enter that space, then we'll have a conversation about that. And both of us will come away with a positive experience because I'll feel heard and I'll be able to have that conversation and you will feel heard and you also learn something. 
just thinking about, you know, the six-year-old girl, what do you think you, as the middle school child who presented as a boy, would say if someone said to you at that time, what pronoun do you go by? Uh, you know, I have no idea. I think about it often because people ask me this question. Sometimes I think I would have brushed it right off and said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just a girl. I'm just a tomboy because I felt a strong desire to prove that I could be. My mom is a very strong, independent woman, and I was always admiring of her womanhood. Mm-hmm. And so we got some hate messages when I was when I was first transitioning that were pointed at my mother. And, and every once in a while, we get a couple of them like, oh, your mother just isn't woman enough. That's why you think you're a man. Oh my you know, God. The, you don't have the right womanhood or whatever. And I, I, that makes me angrier than pretty much any other comment I've gotten. Because if anybody could have shown me what it meant to be a woman, it would have been my mom. And if anybody could have welcomed me, you know, into womanhood in any way, like if there was, there's a shred of me being able to be a woman, it would have been through what my mom showed me. And you said at some point, I'm reading this, that, that despite all of the emotions that you were going through, it was just so rewarding to be who you were yeah, and to just feel like you were yourself finally. Yeah, absolutely. And the first moment where I cried actually because of that, I was standing by the pool deck at the first meet. I was, they were playing the national anthem. Everybody was lining up on the edge of a pool. That's how we all do. We like line up in our, in our, you know, crimson slacks at the edge of the pool, wait for the national anthem to play. And the national anthem was playing and it's always an emotional time for me anyways, because I'm getting ready for the meet and it's, yeah. you know, there's a lot of pressure there to me. But I, I started crying and I thought to myself, oh my God, I can't cry right now. I have to get ready for this meet. But I, I started crying because I was like, holy crap, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm finally here. I'm really me. I'm really me in my whole presentation of myself. And I'm really me doing what I love the most in the world. And that's here swimming. And I, yeah, I, I teared up. I, I stood there surrounded by all of these guys that were my new teammates thinking, this, this is really it. This is crazy. This is, inc- the courage is I, just that's the what, most. That's what I'm thinking too. This, oh God, you are a hero. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I do hope that one day it's not courageous to just be yourself. Yes. yes. Be Agreed. myself. But yes. I, I, when did you share your story on a more public scale? So that started in June, I think, of before I started college, so June of 2015. Mm. Uh, because somebody wanted to do an article on me. They actually were another swimmer that that swam with me. Um, And she and I did an interview and she did a wonderful piece on on just my coming out and my, because I'd come out on Facebook and she had seen it. And so she was writing about that. And then that got picked up by a lot of other major publications. Um, I ended up doing one for the Washington Post. And then after that, we got some TV interest uh, and ended up doing an exclusive with 60 Minutes. And they filmed the whole summer and also the fall through my first travel meet. And then that was published the following April. And that was like how my story was told. This might sound like a weird question, but since, you know, sometimes it feels like, you know, you were the first to kind of embark on something like this. So did you feel any sort of pressure to do it the right way? Like you are now going to represent this experience for trans people in sports for you know, very long period of time. I'm such a, like, I overthink everything. And I imagine like, I'm a crazy person. So I would just be there like all day trying to figure (laughs) out like how to talk about this and do this the right way and make sure it, and I don't know. Sure. No, that's a good question. Yes, I felt pressure. I don't know if it was external. I think a lot of it was internal. Yeah. I think also when I tell this story, there's a lot of there's a lot of things to, you know, people get focused on. And I think everybody kind of focuses on the things that they would feel the most insecure about as well, because there's a lot of things to feel insecure about, if that makes yeah, sense. Of course. But I think for me, I was so focused on my swim team. Like I wanted to feel like I belonged on that team. I wanted to swim fast. And then beyond that, in my personal life, I wanted to be happy. And those were the only things that I was focused on at the time. And I think a lot of things faded into that sort of, like out of that narrow view, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, Which doesn't mean that they didn't come onto my radar every once in a while and doesn't mean that they weren't important. I do think that there was, I had a little bit of tunnel vision because I was so focused and so worried 
about whether or not I was going to belong in the men's team. I mean, my number one insecurity, and it continued through most of college. It wasn't until right. senior year where that really faded. Um, that I was so worried that I that I that I didn't belong on the men's team, and it was totally internal. My teammates never. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> Yeah, they were really great about trying to include me, but I do think belonging is two-sided. You can be asked to belong somewhere. You can be made to feel like you belong somewhere, but if you don't belong there, if you don't accept that belonging, you're never going to feel like you belong. And it took me a long time to really figure out accepting that belonging. You're so much smarter than us. Do you? And I don't I know. <laughs> you really are. It's, it's, like, it's, 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 yeah, it's a little annoying. <laughs> you also have to remember, I've talked about this a couple of times. I mean, yes. this, is, this is my I life. I've talked so, about uh, a lot of things a lot of times. I do not have this stuff. But you, you do understand that it's extraordinary for a teenager to not care about what other people think of you. You know that that's extraordinary, right? I do. I know that it's extraordinary in the definition of the word. It is not ordinary. Yes. Um, I don't know where exactly it came from. I I don't, you know, I think part of it, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm proud of that part of myself, but mm-hmm. I don't think I always have been. I think part of it was a coping mechanism of avoidance. Um, not a bad one, a good one. <laughs> but I think it was also this, like I, I had worked so hard to just be myself. And, and I was so happy with all the things that were going, like I knew in my heart that what I was doing for myself was right. Um, and, and right is a, a totally relative term. It was right for me. And in that, I was like, I am not going to let anybody else's view of what they think of me or what their experience of me or their invalidation or, or their insecurities that I stir up in them have an effect on what I do going forward. So that's something that I think I've honed over my time being an athlete and honed over the time being a kid who was constantly bullied and ostracized by other kids. I mean, I spent my whole childhood being different, you know, never girl enough, never boy enough, never a real girl, never a real boy, never a real student because I was always an athlete, never a real athlete because I was also nerdy. Oh my gosh. Um, Never white, never Korean, never anything. I was always that 1% of the 1% of the 1% with intersectionality. I'm just jumping for a second, but I was looking through your your Instagram feed, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And you. You, you said, you posted something responding to people who said you were more beautiful when you were mm-hmm. a girl. And you said, transition is not about beauty. And I thought that was so powerful um, because, you know, when people don't understand something, they talk about it like it's a choice and, or it's something elective. It's something you kind of just mm-hmm. woke up one day and were like, I'm going to do this because I want to look this way. Um, mm-hmm. Can you maybe elaborate on that? Cause you'll do it sure. way better than I will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also just want to tweak a little on language. I yes. always say when I presented as a girl or presented as female, as opposed to when I was a girl yes. or when Sorry. I you know, oh, was thank a you. woman. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, Again, I understood what you meant, but just because I never truly was a girl. So the reason I said that, I get plenty of comments of people saying like, but you were so beautiful, but you were so gorgeous. Like, how could you destroy your womanhood? You know, a lot of it is said in with, with malintent, um, with transphobic intent. A lot is also said with positive intent. They're trying to say, wait, no, no, you're so beautiful. It's okay. You don't have to change. Uh, and I got a lot of that when I was initially transitioning too. And it was like, but you're beautiful. Why would you want to change? Mm. And the thought process is rooted, again, that specific one is rooted in kindness. They're trying to, they think that they're trying to uh, um, validate me. And that's the reason I want to change is because I feel invalidated. And what I always say is that gender dysphoria, so that's a term that we use to describe the incongruence that, that results in discomfort or pain dissonance due to gender identity being different from one's assigned uh, gender or one's biological gender, uh, biological sex. And gender dysphoria is different from an insecurity. Gender dysphoria can result in insecurities, but Mm -hmm. gender dysphoria itself is not an insecurity. Insecurities are rooted in issues of self-worth, right? Of, of how you feel about yourself. Gender dysphoria is rooted in uh, incongruence of identity. Gender dysphoria is about identity, Insecurity is about self-worth. Gender dysphoria can absolutely cause insecurities and problems with self-worth, right? Like let's say, for example, when I used to have breasts, I felt what we'd say dysphoric about the breasts. They didn't feel like they belonged to me. They felt really incongruent with my identity. I wanted top surgery to remove them. That was dysphoria, that incongruence, that pain, that discomfort, that's dysphoria. When I walked around in the world and I was wearing like a binder or something and somebody like saw my breasts or said something about them or, or gendered me as female because of them. I felt dysphoric, but that caused insecurity Mm. about my breast. Does Mm -hmm. that distinction make sense? I think a lot of people think that trans people transition because of insecurity. 
We don't. We transition mm. because of dysphoria. We transition because of incongruence with identity, not because we don't think we're like worthy of whatever because of a body part or because of a presentation. And we definitely don't transition because we think we're ugly. That doesn't mean that we don't think we're ugly. I mean, there's plenty of people who think that they're ugly. Um, and I think that's a it's, a, it's a common belief, actually, that people think that this is a, a, a sort of choice because of that. They think people transition because they think they'll look better as a different gender. And that's just like so false. In fact, one of the things that stopped me that was a, a big resistance on my transition was I know I'm beautiful presenting as female. I was very aware of the fact, mm. not in an arrogant way, but I was aware that I was beautiful and people told me that I was beautiful. And I thought if I transition, am I going to be anywhere near as attractive as a man? And I ended up deciding, you know what? It doesn't matter. Because I am, I am so unattractive to myself in, in a sense of identity. Like this identity is not mm. what, this doesn't fit my identity, that it doesn't matter if it's attractive to other people. Can we talk about some of the other issues that are somewhat related, gun violence and suicides mm-hmm. to disproportionately affect this community, right? And I'm just like reading some of the statistics and both of us are, are very involved with every town and mom's demand mm-hmm. action. Mm-hmm. And and I saw your posts on toxic masculinity. And I was just wondering if you could maybe talk about. So last year there were over 27 murders of black and brown transgender women in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, over, I think it was over like 300 and 60, I want to say, for the world that year uh, in 2019. And that murder rate is, statistically speaking, for identity-specific issues is sky high. Yeah. There is another study running around that says um, that trans women across the world have a life expectancy of 35, which is compared to the life expectancy of a woman, which should be 75. Do you feel at risk? I personally don't. And that comes honestly, actually from toxic masculinity because I am perceived as male. I pass as cisgender. People read me as cisgender. They don't read me as trans. Um, So I walk around with all the male privilege in the world. If anything, the only danger is that I'm Asian, but that's not really a statistical danger either. I guess actually the only danger is that if people perceive me as gay, that could potentially increase my danger in terms of statistics. But um, no, I don't, I don't feel a danger for being trans purely because I have cis and male passing privilege. I saw you posted the about um, we are here, the hashtag, mm-hmm. and just a lot of the, the steps that have been taken with, with the current administration that really does seem to affect this community. Mm-hmm. And I would just kind of love to hear your perspective. Yeah. um, (laughs) The reason I sigh about it, there's just like so much there, right? Um, There is so much there, which I know we could spend four hours on this. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that the We Are Here campaign and hashtag is trying to to remind the world and this country and the administration specifically is that we're we're not going to stop fighting if you write us out of the military, if you write us out of the workforce, if you write us out of healthcare, if you write our existence out of all of the legal paperwork, which is something that that the administration is also trying to do. We're not going to disappear. We're still going to be trans. We're still going to be here. We're still going to fight. And I think that's the number one thing. I think it's the most powerful thing too, because I think that the, the desire is to try to erase us right now from a lot of things and and allow hatred to pull, to say it's okay, to justify that removal, that erasure. But beyond that, I think it's also, um, and this is where I think I find the most resonance and the most impact is it's reminding young kids that we're still here. It's reminding those young trans kids who are watching what's going on with the administration, thinking they don't belong. It's, yeah. it's the spike, the incredible spike by the Trevor Project, which is an LGBTQ yes. hotline for yeah, yeah. youth for suicide. It's the spike that that hotline had after Trump was elected, right? It's yes. a spike after the military ban of trans people, right? It's those kids read those things and this breaks my heart. And honestly, yeah, and honestly, it makes me very emotional is those kids are reading those things and thinking, I don't, I don't belong here anymore. You know, literally the president of the country has said that I'm unfit to serve. What do I, what do I do? You know, I'm not allowed to be in schools. I can't go to the bathroom. I'm going to be fired for working. I have kids that uh, almost daily tell me my mom or my teacher or my, my friend or my coach or whatever said this about me being trans. And I don't know if I'm supposed to be here. I don't know what to do. I don't think I can ever do X, Y, or Z. This is a 10 year old kid who should be worrying about whether or not like they get their math homework done on time, you know, and not even that. <laughs> and they're worrying about wow. whether or not they have a place in the world. That is so unacceptable to me. 
and so heartbreaking. It's just so much to carry. That's so much to carry for a child. Yeah. And they should never, they should never no. have to care for, yeah, carry that. And that's what I think that that's where I find the biggest impact of the We Are Here movement, because it's showing those kids that they might not be getting the support they need from their parents, from their friends, from their teachers, from their coaches, which they should, but they might not be getting it from them. But there is an enormous body of people who are fighting for those kids who are fighting for our, all of our lives, but especially for those young kids who are 10 and wondering if they have a place in the world because they absolutely do. And we are all here to prove that. Well, you are such an extraordinary and vital voice for Thank you. the I appreciate community. That. What, what does the future hold for you? What, what do you see? Where will you be, you think, 10 years from? <laughs> oh, goodness. I don't know. I hope I have an apartment and a cat um, <laughs> and that I'm, that I'm living with somebody that I love and who loves me. Um, and that's really all I've got. I do think that I'm going to re-enter uh, academia. I want to do a, um, a doctorate program in psychology or in education or in both or focusing in one or the other, you know. Amazing. I think after that, I'll probably, I mean, I'm going to continue doing this advocacy work as long as it's needed. I'm hoping it doesn't need it for the rest of my life. This is what I'm doing full-time right now. Um, I have a lot of projects going on. I'm writing a book. I just finished my first draft. And <gasps> wow. I'm excited about that. So hopefully, um, hopefully that turns out well. Is there anything else that we can kind of tell people about how to support you or to you know, copy your language, how to be an ally. Yeah, absolutely. The number one thing I, I tell people, people ask me all the time how to be an ally. And there's, there's the main thing I always say, especially for trans folks, is you can call somebody the right name and the right pronouns and most impactful way to say to another trans person, I see you, I support you. Level two ally, if you will, is to then correct others when they mm. misgender us, especially when we're not there. And then the level three ally is start to do other things like structural changes. There's plenty of research that supports that when kids are affirmed in their, in their gender, their true gender, um, they will reduce suicide by three and a half times, substance abuse by two and a half times. And they, we already have a ridiculous suicide rate amongst trans people, specifically as kids is in my opinion, it is criminalizing the reduction of suicide. And there is lots of research to support that. So we need people to support things like, like we need to support us fighting that bill. I mean, there's a whole, I have a whole resource page on, on, on my Instagram about that. Um, if you want to check that out, but again, Thank calling you. in the governor, sending, sending emails, asking her to veto it if it makes it to her desk, asking the reps to vote no on the bill and staying active in other bills like this, because unfortunately this isn't the last of its kind. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you so pleasure. much for for sharing your story, for for being so articulate and patient, so open and honest. patient with us, and I'm sure with everybody who is still just trying to learn. And yeah, my yeah. pleasure. Yeah, thank you for being open to learning. That means a lot to me. Thank you so so much. It was an honor, truly. It is an honor to be here. Thank you so much for tuning in and please join us next week as we completely fangirl and lose our minds over finally meeting our hero, Preet Bharara, the guardian of justice. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell. <laughs>